1: To get started,
0: visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Yo, technology,
2: what is it all about? I do think this is going to be the new normal, and people have to realize that this is now going to be a risk every time they step out the door. Nothing is going to be completely safe. It's just going to be what your risk tolerance is, and, and I do think that you're going to see people take different approaches to this.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I am your host, Danny Fortson, West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you for tuning in. And yeah, we have a special bonus episode for you this week. About a week ago, I got on the phone with Dr. Amish Adalja, he is an epidemiologist. He has been right at the forefront of all things coronavirus. He's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. So if you have been watching the numbers around the world for coronavirus, chances are you have been on Johns Hopkins coronavirus website, which has all the stats, everything you would ever want to know about the coronavirus in one place. It is kind of the go-to point of reference. I wanted to talk to Dr. Adalja. This was a week ago, mind you. So in that week, obviously a lot has happened. So we are now in the midst of a full on quite scary resurgence or a kind of a second wave of the first wave here in the United States and it's happening lots of different places, lots of flare ups elsewhere, but here it's really kind of going crazy. So I just want to give you that context. He and I spoke about a week ago. So this is, you know, before we saw things start to ramp up, but just right before. But what we talk about, most of what he is saying is still, you know, it's right on. It's very, very relevant. And for me personally, I just feel like I have no idea what to believe, what's right, what's wrong, what I should be doing. feels like the guidance changes constantly. And Dr. Adalja this is what he covers this is what he studies and he's right in the midst of all of this so I thought it would be a worthwhile conversation obviously it is not techie but then again this is affecting absolutely everything so I think a lot of what um, you're hearing in here will be totally relevant for your life as well as your job your family's health etc so without further ado I will stop talking and give you Dr. Amish Adalja, epidemiologist and senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University talking about all things coronavirus, what we have learned, where we are, and where we're going. Enjoy.
2: I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and that's a think tank focused on infectious diseases, pandemic preparedness, bioterrorism preparedness, and I work on emerging infectious disease and pandemic policy. I also am an infectious disease critical care and emergency medicine physician. So I see patients with many different types of conditions and work in, in various hospital settings. I've basically been in this field since I was training as a physician and have uh, really focused my, my work on trying to understand what's behind pandemics, how to predict them, how to prevent them, and what are the cascading impacts a pandemic might have.
1: And so here we are. We're six, six to eight months in. To this pandemic as we know it, what do we know that we didn't know at the beginning? In other words, do you feel better or worse about this disease and our ability to combat it than you did, say, I don't know, three months ago or six months ago, when it when it was kind of still very new and very scary?
2: Well, I would say that I felt very good six months ago about this. Then I felt very bad about it three months ago, and now I'm feeling a little bit better, and that's because. I'd never imagined that many countries would mismanage the response as badly as they had, including my own in the United States, where Mm. despite warnings that were going on since January about what this might represent, there was basically time that was wasted throughout January, throughout February, and throughout most of March, where there was a grand scale evasion uh, of what this virus represented. And because of that, we were left in dire straits in March, where there were very blunt tools that could be used because we The time was already gone to use any of the precision-guided tools like testing and tracking and isolating. That was basically squandered. So in March, I I felt very pessimistic because things were mismanaged so badly. I do think now in June, things have gotten much better in terms of understanding how this spreads, what the risk factors are for severe disease. We have much better diagnostic testing in many parts of the world now, hospital capacity, in general, in the United States, is not something that we're worried so much about, although there are some hot spots that we, we keep an eye on. So I do feel better about that. But the fact is, this is a virus that was going to be with us, that was not going to be containable, and that would remain a threat until there was a vaccine. So in that sense, I, I wasn't somebody who had any kind of magical thinking that this virus was going to go away, or that it wasn't going to be challenging, or that it wasn't going to impact the world.
1: And so what do we know now, today, about how it spreads? I mean, I think part of the confusion that a lot of people have is, you know, the WHO and other organizations are saying, for example, we don't need masks. No, we don't you know, that's not really going to be that helpful. And then all of a sudden it's like, everybody wear a mask. This is hugely important. So w- what do we know about transmission and what the most dangerous aspects of it are? What should people be doing to kind of keep themselves safe.
2: We know that this is a respiratory virus and that this is a coronavirus. And remember, this is the seventh human coronavirus that we've discovered. And four of the coronaviruses that are out there in humans cause about 25% of our common cold. So we know a lot biologically about this family of viruses. And what we're finding with this novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is that it spreads primarily from person to person through respiratory droplets that fall to the ground in about six feet or so based on the actions of gravity. That's the primary mechanism of how this transmits. There is surface transmission, meaning somebody has touched something and then you touch that and then touch your face. That seems to be secondary and not as an important uh, mechanism of transmission. And then there's distinction about airborne transmission. Airborne transmission is something that we see with tuberculosis and with measles. And that's where particles remain in the air and people get infected by them. And while we have had some reports of particles being seen in the air, we don't see the epidemiology of an airborne infection with this virus the way we do with measles or tuberculosis. There are opportunities that the virus can transmit in an airborne manner, and that's usually in hospital settings where certain types of procedures are being performed, like intubation or uh, giving a person a a nebulized inhaled drug treatment. Those are the types of places where we see airborne transmission. So I think that helps us understand what actions are appropriate. The question regarding masks derives from whether or not people with no symptoms at all or who are about to get symptoms are contagious. And that's been a little bit controversial because we hadn't seen that with other types of coronaviruses before. And that's that's where the mask guidance changed. We always have said, if you're sick, if you have symptoms and you have to be out for whatever reason, you actually shouldn't be out, but if you do, you need to wear a mask if you are sick. The question then became, what about people who don't know they're sick? And that's where there's a little bit of controversy, trying to understand what role those people play. We know that there are people that are pre-symptomatic that likely are contagious, but we need to understand what governs that transmission. Is it happening only in households with close contacts or is it happening in casual contact? And I think this is something that people are debating. That's where the mass recommendation from the WHO and the Centers for Disease Control uh, came from. And I think that there is still some science that needs to be to, to be worked out. But that's become the policy. Uh, I'm somebody who thinks that probably face shields versus homemade masks are probably better for this purpose. And I do think we're starting to see a shift towards face shields.
1: So do you think we will be seeing people because right now here in California, you go out and everybody's wearing a mask. It's, it's it, people have kind of taken to that guidance. But do you think the next f- step could be actually people walking around in the supermarket wherever maybe with face shields?
2: Yeah, I do think face shields are more attractive for a number of reasons. We don't know how effective a homemade mask is. The studies have been not necessarily done on homemade masks. And people with homemade masks tend to touch their face a lot. They are often adjusting them. They often don't wear them properly. They often have their nose sticking out of the mask. They also will discard their masks on the street. And that's an infection risk for people who have to pick that up and clean it. They don't actually clean their masks. There's a lot of of issues with homemade masks, and there's also this false sense of security that people get with wearing a mask, thinking it's a substitute for social distancing. When you look at a face shield, a face shield is something that is not as restrictive over someone's face or nose, so there's not this tendency to kind of wear it in in an inappropriate manner. You can't touch your face because you've got a face shield there. You can clean the face shield. The face shield actually covers your eyes, and you can actually get infected through your eyes. Suppose you've got the virus on your hands and you rub your eyes, you could actually be infected because the eyes are a mucous membrane as well. So for many reasons, I think that face shields are are, uh, a superior alternative to the homemade face masks for the general public.
1: But do you think that's a realistic option? The CDC or whomever saying, okay, now we need this massive effort to create hundreds of millions of face shields and everybody needs to wear these. I mean, do you you see that actually happening?
2: I think it's already happening. You're starting to see guidance that talks about not face masks, but face coverings. So I do think that you are seeing a shift as the data accumulates. There's medical journal articles now about about face shields. We're talking about face shields in sports. And when you're a healthcare worker, you're taking care of a patient, you're wearing a face shield along Mm -hmm. with the mask. But I do think that there is probably going to be guidance and it actually might be easier to do because this is just basically a piece of plexiglass and a headband and it's reusable. It's not something you have to throw out. So in terms of production, it might actually be something that you see be easier or um, used as an option. I think what the CDC may do or public health authority guidance might change to be wear some sort of face covering. And allowing people the discretion to use those. But increasingly, I think people, once they try a face shield, will probably find that to be easier. And once the data emerges that this actually is something that's likely going to be better than a, face, than a homemade face mask, you may see a, a shift because it's already happening in, in many parts of the country. And there's a lot of experts that have been advocating face shields over homemade face masks.
1: Right. I want to come back to one of the points you made around transmission and kind of surfaces, surfaces, high touch surfaces, or, you know, a lot of people, including for a while us, we were like sanitizing our groceries and things like this. What have we learned about this kind of the surface transmission and how big a risk that is.
2: Surface transmission is a secondary means of transmission, meaning it's not the main way that this virus is getting around. And it's interesting because so many people were doing things like you just mentioned, sanitizing Mm. their groceries. And we saw calls going up to poison centers at record numbers because people were inhaling some of those household cleaning agents because they were so meticulous about trying to clean their groceries. I can tell you that I never cleaned my groceries once um, uh, during this pandemic.
1: So in terms of just the, all the different vectors or the different ways, it is primarily these droplets in the air. It would seem that social distancing is the primary and best way to stay safe still.
2: Yeah, if, you're, if your goal is to avoid
1: exposure to this virus, staying six feet away from people at all
2: times is going to substantially reduce your risk of acquiring or transmitting the virus. And if you couple that with washing your hands, and not touching your face it's very hard to imagine you getting infected if you're doing that 100 percent of the time
1: and what do we know about the indoor versus outdoor transmission because that's because that's another thing again out here in california you have a lot of tech companies who are either saying don't come back to the office until 2021 or don't come back to the office ever because it appears uh, and i'd love to get your thoughts on this is that being indoors in a confined space with other people Is a pretty high risk, especially when you compare it to being around people outdoors.
2: Yeah, outdoor transmission tends to be less likely than indoor transmission. Everything being equal, Uh, we don't see as much epidemiologically in terms of spread that's going on outdoors. So it is something that we would prefer. Outdoors are much more conducive to social distancing. Surface transmission, even though it's secondary, is going to be less outdoors because, especially when when it is um, summertime, because it is hotter. There's more UV radiation from sunlight. The humidity is different. All of that is less conducive to transmission of the virus. And you couple that with the fact that people can social distance outside. That makes it much less likely that you would see it. And then there's also more ventilation. So whatever droplets come out of your mouth are rapidly kind of whisked away if there is a breeze or something like that uh, decreases the chance that a droplet makes it to another person.
1: And are you concerned... You know, it's summer now, people are outside a lot more, et cetera. Are you concerned about the quote unquote the second wave when it gets turns to fall and people are indoors more and flu season starts and it kind of all comes together at once? I do think it's inevitable
2: that we have transmission in the fall and we have to be prepared for the fact that that transmission is more intense because we know that coronaviruses, uh, the other ones, the other four that I talked about that cause 25% Mm. of our common colds, have stark seasonality and they do intensify their transmission when it gets colder, when it gets less, when it gets less humid, when it is uh, less sunny, and when people are inside because it is cold. So we have to prepare for the fact that we may see an increased level of transmission in the fall. And if you look at the Southern Hemisphere now, which is in their, in their fall, they are starting to see increasing activity of the virus. And I think that that is going to be an important challenge to meet. And we have to take the time now, especially in places where hospital capacity, and, and they're not seeing many cases right now, to make sure that we are prepared for the fall, because we will be not only contending with the novel coronavirus, but regular influenza will be back as well. And we want to make sure that we have resources to deal with uh, patients with both influenza and coronavirus. And uh, that's part of the reason why we're really emphasizing people get their flu vaccines this year, in order to keep those individuals with flu out of the hospital so that we have room to take care of the coronavirus patients.
1: And so how do you see this playing out? Because, you know, we obviously had the lockdowns. I mean, they were controversial. Country to country. So, you know, they were quite extreme. But there is this sense that, okay, we've done that. We're not going to do that again. Or people aren't willing to do that. Do you think these extreme lockdowns will be necessary again, especially as we go into this kind of acute period where, you know, numbers are probably going to spike?
2: I don't think that the extreme version of what happened with the enforced social distancing was ever really necessary. I think many people could have done There was there were a place, at least in the blanket way that they were issued and the variations that we saw between 50 states where in one state construction was illegal and the other state construction was permitted. That, that type of approach, I don't think anybody agrees, was actually the optimal way of doing it. You have to remember, first, that the enforced social distancing and the shutdowns that we saw in the United States were the result of the fact that there was months of squandered time when the precision guided tools of public health could have been used, but were not used, were wasted on things like travel bans and, and quarantining people on Air Force bases. What we really should have done has been much more direct and said, you know, these are the people that are infected. These are the high risk individuals. This is, these are the activities that contribute to spread. And let's focus on those and then doing a lot of testing and tracking and isolating. We didn't do that. So then you had this blunt tool. Now, I think in the United States, because we've gotten this under better control in most of the states. We're worried about certain states like Arizona and Texas and Florida and Alabama. But in general, we have the cases to a level that are manageable. We have case contact tracing teams in place at health departments. We have much better diagnostic testing. We have a better handle on hospital capacity, personal protective equipment, mechanical ventilators, so that I do think when we go into the fall and if there are flare-ups that occur, and I think inevitably they will, we will see much more surgical and precision-guided directives regarding social distancing and we would not move to complete economic shutdowns again or stay at home orders it will be much more much more directed and much more how you would have done this ideally if you had not wasted 3 months early in the year with this outbreak
1: is there anything or a couple things that make this really different or that have some really surprised you as we've learned more about this virus that is that makes it particularly unique or pernicious
2: Well, I think that it it was important to know from the beginning that this was a novel coronavirus and that because of that, the whole population remained susceptible. So we were going to see this be very big. The thing that I guess has been surprising is that unlike some of the other coronaviruses, this tends to have interesting manifestations like, for example, blood clotting disorders or this ability in in a patient with respiratory failure to kind of flip between two different types of respiratory failure that aren't really that common. And then also to see that there's this inflammatory syndrome that might be happening in rare cases in children. So some of these downstream manifestations are interesting and surprising to me because they don't necessarily track with other coronaviruses. So I think that's that's something that's been important to watch and, and to try and understand and help gauge how to think of this coronavirus in terms of its severity.
1: And I think the other thing that's worth trying to understand is just the distribution of it. So, there was at least initially this belief that children were effectively totally immune, which doesn't appear to be the case now, as you just referenced. Can you kind of describe, if we're looking along the, you know, from age zero to 85, what the distribution of cases has been and what we understand about what's happening there? sure so no one just to start no one said that children were immune from infection
2: what we had what we've learned and i think still remains to be true is that children even though they're infected are spared from the severe consequences of Mm. that and it's definitely true that children less than the age of eight if you're less than 18 your experience with this virus is likely to be very mild you may not even have any symptoms and that remains to be true even with the inflammatory syndrome that happens in rare cases. It still is clearly the case that children have been relatively spared from the severe consequences of this disease. And if you look at the age range of people that get, that get hospitalized, there is a sharp increase in the graph when you get to around age 60. And I think that's what's interesting about this pandemic, is that those people that are of advanced age are most susceptible. In many states in the United States, if you look at where the deaths were clustering, it was in nursing homes. And I think that's another important point, is that we did not fortify nursing homes very early on. And there were some mistakes where governors forced nursing homes to take coronavirus patients. And then that led to spread because those nursing homes were not equipped to do appropriate infection control. So we definitely see those who are older, those with other risk factors for disease, being diabetic, being hypertensive, being obese, having lung disease. That's really what what is driving hospitalizations. And as we move forward, it's going to be very important to protect those vulnerable populations. United States, our outbreak really started with a nursing home outbreak in the state of Washington. And yeah. You can imagine how different things would have been if they would have fortified that nursing home, knowing these are the people we need to fortify. We need to really restrict our visitors at our nursing home. We need to be aggressive with testing and infection control in nursing homes and not allow patients, if we're not ready for them, to be, be discharged from the hospital to our nursing homes, because that's really one of the stories of this pandemic. I think that's underappreciated by the general public is that our nursing homes really were something that put our hospitals in crisis as major outbreaks occurred in nursing homes. And if you look at the deaths and you subtract out the nursing home deaths, it's a very different pandemic. And then the other thing, just you know, to take a contrast to 1918, the average age of death in 1918 was 27 mm. years, 27 years old. Whereas wow. in this pandemic, this, this is largely in people at, at, of advanced age. And I think that's also something that guided the response to this or is part of the context for this because it's a very different pandemic and outbreak if people in the prime of life are dying or if children are dying versus the elderly dying. And I think that's also part of the story of this pandemic, that it is killing people that are in nursing homes that tend to be older. And that does have different implications for how the pandemic is is managed and how willing people are to do social distancing based upon who's dying.
1: So just to play that out, you know, if we do extract, as you mentioned, extract the nursing homes from it, what does this pandemic look like? Is it all of a sudden much less scary or is that unfair?
2: Yeah. When you think about what's driving the, the response to this, it is, the, it is the hospitalizations and the deaths. And that's primarily concentrated in nursing home patients. And if you take those, those out, then I think it becomes a, a much more manageable pandemic and one that is less scary, still serious, still disruptive, but not the same thing probably wouldn't see hospitals getting into crisis like they did in New York City if you took out some of the some of those age those age groups which were really making up a lot of the hospitalizations. It would change the way the the pandemic would would look. I mean I think that's true for any pandemic. That's why seasonal flu is probably not something that people worry about even though seasonal flu kills tens of thousands of Americans. The average age of death is in the 60s and 70s. So that's considered less disruptive to society. But like mm. if you go back to HIV in some of those sub-Saharan African countries, the, the average age of death was in the 30s or 40s and decimated those populations and their economies because those were people in the prime of their life. So I think from a societal or from an anthropological standpoint, it's really important to think of a pandemic and who is getting the severe disease, who is dying from this, and what implication that has on society. I think that's another fascinating aspect of, of pandemic response.
1: On that point, do you have any sense of how this will play out again when we're talking about the response? Because the other thing that has become clear is that there is a pretty clear divide along racial and class lines. And when we're talking about the response, how that might shape it if, again, if it's one, mostly old people, and second, if the rest of those are mostly black and brown people or poor people.
2: Well, sure. I think that any, pandemics are going to magnify whatever's going on in society and whatever whatever issues are there are going to be exploited by a pandemic. So it's not surprising that you're seeing that an, that African-Americans are twice as likely to die from this and other racial groups. And that has to do with a lot of things, inter, including the fact that to be able to social distance, to be able to telecommute, that's kind of a, a luxury. It's not necessarily anybody that everybody can do it. And I think that's something that was lost on a lot of individuals, that, that you cannot expect everybody to have equal ease with social distancing and remaining at home, especially when many people are essential workers. And I think that, that's part of it. And then we know that in the African-American community in the United States, they have, they have higher prevalences of obesity, hypertension, and diabetes, which are definite cofactors in severe disease. So I think that what you had was many different factors converging that impacted the African-American community disproportionately. And I think that is part of what we need to think about is when you are recommending that people stay at home, when you're doing that kind of stuff, realize that it's not going to be everybody doing it and not everyone has the luxury to do that. And that infectious diseases are going to prey on people with pre-existing conditions. And if you have a high burden of chronic, non-communicable infectious diseases like hypertension, diabetes, and obesity in a population, that group is going to become more vulnerable and needs to be they need to have targeted public health interventions for those individuals because they are going to be the ones at risk for severe disease. And I think this this pandemic illustrates that point pretty pretty clearly.
1: And is there any precedent for that actually happening? These vulnerable populations, these poor populations are getting the hardest hit by this. We need to come up with a whole plan to protect them because there is a sense that, well, if it's kind of happening over there, to those people, well, then we're fine over here, and maybe we don't need to kind of take these measures or, or, or take special steps to protect them.
2: Well, I do think that there's been a realization from the beginning of this pandemic that, that there were disproportionate impacts and there have been efforts to try and, and uh, increase the, the level of public health outreach to those groups, but obviously it hasn't been complete. And I do think that the... Pro- protests in response to the, the killing of George Floyd actually magnified that because then you have, for example, some of those protests were actually causing some of our testing sites in African-American communities to be closed down. So you had lots of different converging factors that were causing, causing problems here. So I think that there's just been basically an inundation of events that have, have made this pandemic much more severe in, in the African-American community. But I do think that, that moving forward, I think that there has been a clear recognition of that and efforts to remedy it. But again, this is an acute event, this pandemic, and some of the, the chronic social ills that, that impact the African-American community disproportionately, including the burden of chronic disease, that's more of a long-term problem that needs to be solved with diabetes, obesity, and hypertension and making sure that those individuals in that community are getting adequate treatment and, and access to healthcare to be able to actually get rid of the root causes that make that community much more susceptible
0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: I wanted to move to the vaccine because one of the things that I've found interesting, and I don't fully understand it, is that from the beginning, there's been a a kind of overriding certainty that at some point we will have a vaccine. And I just don't understand what is behind that certainty. And what, if anything, we have seen thus far, uh, again, six or eight months in, that would indicate that, yes, we are moving in that direction. I know there's a ton of candidates being tested, et cetera. But just trying to understand kind of how likely that is and why people seem to be so certain that it is achievable and achievable relatively quickly.
2: I have no doubt that that we will develop a coronavirus vaccine. I think most people think of this as a novel virus and don't realize it's part of a viral family. Again, this is the seventh human coronavirus that we've discovered. And there's coronaviruses that infect animal species. And there are very successful veterinary vaccines against coronaviruses in cows and in birds. So there's no biological barrier to developing a coronavirus vaccine. It's just that for most of their existence, they were considered common cold viruses and not something that was really worth pursuing a vaccine against other than an animal species. When SARS came around in 2003, there was some vaccine development that started, but because (laughs) SARS was kind of fleeting and disappeared, that kind of was the funding for that kind of dried up, and those things were put on the shelf. And the same thing sort of happened with Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, but Middle East Respiratory Syndrome did get people thinking we need to get a vaccine for coronaviruses. So some early work was actually being done, which is now being leveraged for this coronavirus. But I I do think we are moving faster than ever with this uh, with this vaccine development process. There are multiple clinical candidates in phase two and phase three clinical trials, which is record time. The data that we're seeing emerge from some of the the candidates in the phase one clinical trials looks very good. And again, this is to be expected. The question is not about can we make a vaccine, but when will the vaccine be ready? And I think that's the issue that I think is getting muddled here, that it, it is gonna take some time to make a vaccine because you're giving a vaccine to healthy people. So you really have to understand the safety profile. You have to study it in enough people to know what the side effect the, the, even the least common side effects are because if you're vaccinating 8 billion people, something that's very uncommon could still be a big number. And you have to, to follow those people out for a certain period of time figure out the dosing, all of that. So that's the question is, you know, I think when people say 12 to 18 months, that's optimistic because vaccine development is usually years, not, not months, but yeah. it's in the realm of possibility. But I do think that we, we, we will have a vaccine and that there's not a biological block to having a coronavirus vaccine. It just hadn't been something that was prioritized because of what the history was with coronaviruses.
1: And so do you think the, the, the future is effectively we're just going to have to live with this. People are going to have to learn to live with risk because i think that's what one of the scary things is you know for example personally we just sent our 3-year-old back to his preschool they're taking all kinds of measures smaller class sizes you know sanitizing the play structures all this kind of stuff but the very idea of sending him back when there is this thing out there is you know something that kept us up many nights and still keeps us up Because, you know, we want him to be socialized and all that stuff. But at the same time, you're like, well, is the risk worth it? Do you see this as basically being the new normal that we're just going to, everybody's going to have to get used to the fact that there's this thing out there and if you get it, you'll probably be fine, but you also might die.
2: I do think this is going to be the new normal and people have to realize that this is now going to be a risk every time they step out the door. And for most people, that risk is going to be manageable, but people have different risk Tolerances. People have different risk factors for severe disease. So I, I think that most Americans and most people in the world, in the developed world, have not had to deal with this for a long time. But you got to think maybe back into the 1960s or the 1950s when polio was a threat or when measles, before the measles vaccine. These are things that people dealt with. I think we are gotten very unable to deal with risk anymore in our everyday life because things have become very, very safe because of civilization, because of technology, because of the success of vaccines, that infectious diseases are not something people think about as, as, a, as a real risk anymore. And I think that's what we have to, that's what we're going to be back into for the next several months and, and maybe maybe up to two years until there is a vaccine. And I think that each person is going to approach that risk differently. There's not going to be black or white answers. It's all going to be gray. Nothing is going to be completely safe. It's just going to be what your risk tolerance is. And, and I do think that you're going to see people take different approaches to this.
1: And is there anything like in your list of do not do or things that you would just thinking about that risk profile that are just bad ideas? Or that, as you as an epidemiologist say, you know what, we should just stop doing X for a while, whether that's concerts or I don't know. Are there things that we're just like, we're just going to have to forego until we have a vaccine?
2: I do think that mass gatherings are going to be very difficult to have, especially if they're indoor and people are doing things that increase the chance of transmission, like chanting, singing, and screaming. So, while it might be difficult to have a, a rock concert in this setting, you could probably have a Beethoven concert. So, I don't think it's going to be all one size fits all, but I think mass gatherings where people have the opportunity to spread the virus are going to be very difficult to have. And I think you're going to see an approach that's varied based on the locality that's having it. And we're already talking about having an indoor mass gathering you know, this weekend. Uh, there are some concert tours that are starting back up. I think they're going to be challenging. I think they could be manageable if there was a proper precautions put in place, but those are just going to be something that are, are difficult to have, especially if there's an exposure there and how much contact tracing would necessarily need to be done in order to be able to keep that, that safe. But I, I think that barring that, I think that the, the most things are going to be based on an individual's risk tolerance and their risk factors for severe disease. So I might tell somebody that's 20 years old and healthy, you know, yes, there's a risk of getting it, but you're likely to be okay. And this is what you need to do to keep yourself safe. But if there was somebody that's 20 and a lung transplant recipient, I'd say, I don't think you should go. So I think it's really going to be individualized.
1: Right. And then lastly, I wanted to just talk about leadership and the importance of leadership in times like this, because I'm thinking about, again, our state, our governor, every time he shows up in public, he has a face mask on. Yeah, our president does not and neither do any of the people on his task force for this very virus. You know, just thinking about the history of epidemics, pandemics, it does feel like the messaging is as important as the measures themselves. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I do think that it's very important that we have consistent public health messages that are not contradictory. And I would say, you know, irrespective of where you stand on the science on masks, if your government, that you're the head of, that you've created a task force for is recommending a certain thing, then you should actually follow what your own, the own task force that you constituted is saying. That I think is, is a major issue. And I do think that some members of the task force do mim- mimic that behavior. People like Surgeon General Adams or, or Dr. Mm. Fauci or Dr. Burke. So it's not that all of the task force members don't, don't wear masks, but if the people that constituted that task force, the ones that, that stand by its that's recommendations, that want those recommendations to be enforced, then don't follow those recommendations, that sends the wrong message. And it's kind of saying, you know, do as I say but not as I do. And that's not what we, we expect from our leaders.
1: Well, indeed. And, and that, that's the, uh, And just going back to where we started, this, there does seem to be a confu- bit of confusion. And I'm thinking about the WHO saying actually – asymptomatic transmission is very rare and doesn't look like it's much of a problem. And then walking that back the next day and the same thing about no masks, okay, yes masks. Do you have any sense of why there has been so many mixed messages, especially from these organizations that know that messaging is super important when you're asking people to change behavior?
2: So it's interesting because the WHO statement wasn't that confusing to me, but what and what they were saying, it wasn't really a walk back, but just a clarification because people were not drawing the distinction between asymptomatic people, meaning people who n- get infected and never get symptoms, do they contribute mm-hmm. to spread versus pre-symptomatic people who don't have symptoms at a, at a, for a certain period of time, but are still contagious. And I think that's where the confusion came from, was that, they, that many people took asymptomatic t- to include pre-symptomatic people. Right. And again, so, and, and I think that's what the WHO clarification was about, that we knew that we didn't think that asymptomatic people who never developed symptoms really contributed to much spread. But were there people that were asymptomatic for a couple of days because they were truly pre-symptomatic and then the day later they get in, they, they get symptoms. Were they contagious before they had symptoms? And I think that's one of the open questions. And, and when it comes to masks, I think that, that that's been part of the question of understanding should masks be worn as source control to prevent you from spreading it? And, and there was a lot of questions about that and I still don't think they're completely answered because even if you read the WHO guidance on masks, they say there is no direct evidence that masks provide that benefit and what evidence does exist is of poor quality so i do think that there is this evidence gap that we have and what ends up happening is when you have medical professionals or public health professionals speaking they're often going to speak in a scientific medical Mm. medical form so they'll say there's no evidence so for example they said there's no evidence that antibodies protect you from reinfection the reason why there was no evidence is because to get that evidence you have to follow people out for eight months to see if they get reinfected but eight months hadn't elapsed so technically there's no evidence but the press um interpreted that to say it's completely not a thing you can't that there's not going to be protection but that's not what the who said so i think that there's a lot of nuance that's happening in this pandemic with the way we in the field speak and how that gets translated into the general public and i think that that's something that we have to work on on both sides of that because uh, medical speak can be very very nuanced and very very specific and not necessarily translate to a headline
1: No, exactly. The other thing that there is a lot of confusion about, and you may have already answered this question with what you were just saying, this idea that once you have it, you're immune or immune for a long time. Is that something that, again, we won't know for a year or two, because that's how long we need to be able to basically test that hypothesis? Exactly.
2: You you have to do what are called natural history studies, meaning follow people who are infected and see do they get reinfected upon Uh, re-exposure to the virus, and I think that that takes time, so that's the reason why there's quote-unquote no evidence, because that time hasn't elapsed yet, so there won't be evidence until that time elapsed, but we do know from other infectious diseases and also from other coronavirus infections that once you're infected, you likely are immune from reinfection for a period of time. How long that period of time is, whether it's several months or is it a year or more than a year, we won't know until that time actually elapsed, and it's not just about antibodies. There are other parts of your immune system that we don't measure well that seem to also have an impact on this, and And I think that this is something that is likely going to be operationalized out in the future. And we obviously are testing for antibodies because we think they are protective because we're giving those to people in convalescent plasma. So I think that this is likely going to be the case, but we need to know the the duration and how much of an antibody level you need to have to be considered protective. Are you immune from reinfection? Are you just immune from getting severe disease? Are you still contagious if you get reinfected? Even though you might not have symptoms, all of those are important questions, but those are going to take time to answer because we have to allow that time to elapse.
1: And then lastly, just again, speaking about the response in the kind of history of epidemics, pandemics, things like this, is there precedent either in in the response, i.e. basically telling everybody to stay home or... And also in the kind of the slowness of it, letting things kind of get completely out of control and then reacting with these very, as you say, these very blunt tools. In the living through it, it all just seems so crazy and completely ass backwards the way we've gone about this. But I don't know if this is just the way things go in a pandemic because they're big and new and scary and lethal no it's not the way it should have went and if and if i was doing this
2: podcast in taiwan you probably would not be asking me the same types of questions but there are <laughs> there are best practices there are ways to do this and, and there are countries that did not have this type of experience and we've got better precedents with h1n1 although h1n1 was not nearly as deadly as this we do have precedents of how outbreak response can be handled better but again this th- these responses are very prone to politicization at the both at the national level the local level and at, even at the international level. And that can often make what are great plans go haywire because there is a lot of political red meat during a pandemic and, and doing things like travel bans, for example, can really look to the general public like you're doing something, even though it's actually doing the wrong thing. So there's the, the incentives are often on political leaders to take the wrong actions or to take any action, even if it is wrong. And I think that's the problem that we have to fight with. And I think it really got magnified in in this outbreak. If you look, for example, at at outbreaks like Ebola and Zika, there were definite missteps there, or even H1N1, but they were not as disruptive because people were a lot more amenable to thinking about the science. We didn't have this injection of politics into this on all sides. And I do think that this isn't going to be an example, at least in the United States, as how you should handle a pandemic. It might be um, if we actually took Taiwan's example or maybe South Korea's example, but not the United States. This was a, a failure from the United States part on, on something that, that we were considered the most prepared country for a pandemic, yet we failed miserably.
1: Yeah. And then, sorry, that, that led to one final question, which is a lot of our listeners are in the UK. And there was this idea initially, oh, we'll go for herd immunity. And then there was like, well, maybe that's a bad idea. And we know all the stories since then. There's been, the UK has also been very, very hard hit. Do you think, barring a vaccine, that herd immunity is something that is, is that in any universe a, a, something we should basically kind of just let happen or work toward?
2: I don't think that you can with a virus like this. Because what ends up happening is you take high losses in terms of deaths based on the fact that vulnerable populations can't really be isolated that well. You can do the be- I think that you kind of have to find a hybrid between herd immunity, complete economic lockdown and letting the virus rip. There's gotta be a, a better way to kind of, to, to weigh those types of things. Mm-hmm. I don't think that herd immunity is the, is the best way to go about it with a virus like this, because you will get losses, you will get hospitals that are inundated there's no immunity in the population. Lots of people are going to be infected. You're going to get people hospitalized. You can maybe lock down nursing homes and do that, but there's going to be many community-dwelling old people that are going to be harder to do, harder to isolate. So I think what, if you're going to try and say, we don't want to shut everything down, you're still going to have to have some, some degree of guidance to the public about social distancing, about hand-washing, about not touching your face. I don't think that you can kind of let this rip and not face consequences that might be too much for your healthcare system system to, to deal with.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Dr. Adalja for taking the time to chat. He and I spoke just just over a week ago. Obviously, the world has changed quite a bit since then, which seems to be kind of just what is happening these days. So, yeah, just, I don't know what to say. (laughs) It's all quite bewildering. But please stay safe. Please stay sane. Stay indoors. Wear a mask or a face shield. Apparently, that's going to be a new thing. That's kind of weird, actually. I just saw a woman walking her dog by my house with a face shield on today. But maybe that is our future. I don't know. I feel like a face shield is a small price to pay for getting to go back to living life. But we shall see how it all plays out. Anyhow, that is it. I will have another pod this week that will be dropping at the same bat time, same bat station. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.